to Engage and Equip, a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Jill Reese, and I'm the content and ministry coordinator here at High Point Church, and I am joined by our lead pastor, Nick Gibson. Hey! And we are going to be talking about the sustaining renewal, ask me anything questions. All right, we are going to start with some cultural questions first before we dive into questions related to the sermons. What are your thoughts on the Ravi Zacharias situation? Yeah, I've said a couple things about this in AMAs. Obviously, I'm very sad. Uh, Ravi Zacharias was, was an incredibly talented person. Um, and it's really sad to see somebody with that long of a ministry who was that articulate and built that much of a ministry and also um, received as many donation and funding dollars as he did and RZM did um, to see that kind of like take this huge of a hit is really, really sad. I mean, uh, Ravi Zacharias was literally the person I wanted to be when I went into ministry. And so to see him uh, go down in this way is hard. Um, beyond that, I mean, I have tons of thoughts. I have thoughts from how easy it is to fall into sin as a Christian leader, especially sensual sin like this, um, the pitfalls of itinerant ministry to like, um, like what chronic pain does to people. Ravi Zacharias had very severe chronic back pain for years. And I can only speculate about how that affected how he thought and what he rationalized over time and how people mm-hmm. go through that kind of a descent. So I just, we don't have time for that, but I just, yeah, I'm very saddened by it. <clears throat> He's really gifted. Even though he did these things, uh, his deposit in me, that, that what God did through him in my life was <clears throat> decisively helpful in an incredible mm-hmm. way. And so I'm, I'm thankful to God for it. And that's, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I will just, just leave it there. Cause I, there's a lot more I can say about that. And I have said some of it in AMAs already. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. There's been an increasing interest from many quarters in psychedelic drugs. For example, LSD, DMT, and uh, psilocybin. Oh, you know good. To... Okay, great. Good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As a salutary force. Uh, recent academic studies of these compounds in folks with mental problems like addiction and depression seem to show real benefits, often through a reawakening of those people's spiritual faculties. Would it be acceptable for a Christian to participate in the studies of these substances? And could you ever imagine condoning their use more generally? Yeah, I mean, I, as Christians, I, I just don't think we should be, I don't think we need to be like, okay, you know, thing A is always bad. I mean, sometimes sometimes there are things that are maybe always bad, but most things like I, I don't think are probably always bad, right? And the idea that there might be some very limited uses of um, cannabis that are helpful, I think is, I think is a real thing. I think that we should be incredibly careful about um, the negative effects of all kinds of psycho, psycho, not just psychedelics and things like marijuana, like medicinal dr- plants or herbs like that, but also like um, uh, pharmaceuticals. I mean, there's tons of pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. We just think that if like, if it's in a pill in a bottle, that just gets to be in a completely different moral category than anything else. But there's, I mean, there's all kinds of antidepressants that we use in, in addictive ways. There's painkillers that are in little bottles like that, that we use and get addicted to. But there's also like painkillers in those little bottles that really help people out with their pain. You know, mm-hmm. and so um, 
I just, I just don't know that we're going to be able to say like, oh, you know, this good, that bad. Now, when it comes to psychedelics, which is what the question is about, there have been studies going back to the 1960s that have stated, particularly in cases of like um, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or certain kinds of ways in which people's imaginative capacities for healings have been shut down, that a few highly controlled and ordered, um, like that is the environment in which it happens is really well shepherded. Mm-hmm. experiences with relatively low levels of psychedelics can precipitate like an un like an unmistakable and pretty profound amount of healing mm-hmm. and that for the most part long-term use is not helpful um the my understanding is is that it's between one dose and four or five doses total um that you go on these like very controlled trips directly related to counseling specific to traumas or ways in which you've been shut down through traumatic stress or so on. And that it kind of like reopens something and it does appear to be spiritual in a certain kind of way. Um, I do know people who like were the most unspiritually minded people I've ever met who had like one or two trips on something like this. And it was just like, yeah, I'm totally open to God now. And like all that kind of stuff. Cause like once you, once that trips something in your imagination and you realize your brain in a certain state of mind is capable of experiencing the universe in a completely different way, then the idea that the universe is completely different all the time in ways you don't perceive because of your mindful, normal mindfulness becomes completely like reasonable. And so, okay. So from a scientific perspective, perspective studied carefully, I do think that we, if we're open to pharmaceuticals at all, chemicals that affect our bodies in certain ways that we think could be beneficial, then I think we should be open to this. And I think that if we're not open to this, then I'm not sure that we should be open to a lot of chemicals that we appear to be open to. Right. Um, but I also think Christians sometimes because there's a certain kind of like um, get back to nature, Christian people that look at like CBD oil and that kind of stuff is like, it's going to save us all. Like, like the, there's like going to be this medicine that's going to like do all of this stuff. And I just, just be careful when you do that. Like, you know, you can use some of these things and it's fine, but like pay attention to what we're really finding out scientifically in like peer reviewed studies as best as we can. And don't think that like CBD is going to cure everything. You know what I mean? Like, or like that taking a couple trips on a psychedelic like this is going to cure everything. And I certainly don't encourage believers or anybody to just go out and get a bunch of shrooms and drop them and think that you're going to get better psychologically. Because listen, Yes, you can have these trips and they can be very beneficial to you. But listen, if you're anxious or something and you don't even really know it and you drop one of these things, your trip can be so bad. It can send you into like, like it can create new psychological problems for you that can be very profound and very hard to undo. So um, I've, I've talked to people who have stress and anxiety disorders that they can't get rid of because they took a trip on one of these and they were like, they were in a highly anxious state. They thought it would help them. Instead, they had an incredibly terrible trip full of anxieties that like imprinted itself on their brains in ways they can't get rid of. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, you gotta be careful. You gotta be careful with some of this stuff. Um, and so I, but I also don't want to just rule it out. I mean, maybe God has something that he does this way. He chose to bind our neurology to our souls. I mean, that was his choice. And when he chose to do that, um, he chose to affect our neurology by our spirit. So our spirits could affect our physiology and our neurology in certain ways. I don't see why the opposite wouldn't also be the case. They could make certain ways in which our physiology can affect our souls. And this might be one of those ways. I, but I just think we need to be real careful about it. Mm-hmm. To get through as well as we can. 
Next question. If going to church in person is what is causing my brother or sister to sin because of COVID and going to church because of COVID, how do I navigate this? Yeah, this is a difficult question, right? So there are, there are folks that really believe it is just immoral to go to church, to be around other people. Um, Hopefully this is easing a little bit with the vaccines and so on. Um, But yeah, we have had people at high point who just, frankly, it's not just they're staying home, but they think everybody who isn't staying home is wrong and is acting in an objectively immoral way. Um, And so I don't, I don't want to get too much into that. I don't want to like try to beat up on those people because if they believe that they probably believe it conscientiously. And I don't think they should believe things against their conscience. Okay. However, let me say two things. One is, even if you think the thing is immoral, you still have to engage in the charitable mindedness that's encouraged on all Christians. So if you think it's wrong for Christians to go to church, you can believe that, right? And still give them charity in going to church and not leave your church over it. One of the things you've heard me say, Jill, is that I think that one of the worst, I don't know one of the worst, a very bad thing that could happen in the Christian church is for us to sort and leave churches and join new churches over how they responded to COVID. Now, on one level, you could say that's perfectly reasonable because how people responded to COVID says a lot about the churches. True. But the number one most predictable reason by which people hold their view about what to do related to COVID is their politics. It's not science. It's not how educated they are. It's not like how careful they are, how empathetic they are. It's it's their politics. If they if you are on the left side of things, and that's what you're listening to, and those are the news sources you listen to, you are ironically highly conservative in the, on this item. And if you are of a conservative view, you tend to be highly liberal or progressive in it that you like. We shouldn't constrain ourselves. And so, if we sort ourselves over our our attitudes about COVID, we will sort ourselves politically and ideologically in a way that will not be healthy for the church and cause every church to be more extreme in its view, which would be very, very bad for the church. Um, Now, relative to if you are the person who is scandalizing your brother because you're going to church, right? Because they hold that view. My response to that is this. Romans 14 is specifically about what the apostle Paul calls disputable matters, right? So it is the use of your freedom in a way that could be controversial if you think things through different ways, Christianly speaking. Now, on one level, what we should do in COVID does fall into disputable matters, right? However, gathering for worship is also not a disputable matter, but a matter of obedience. So when the Apostle Paul discusses disputable matters, he never uses as an example an issue of obedience. Nobody has to eat meat to obey Jesus. We do it because it's a use of our freedom. But we don't have to do it. We're not commanded to do it anywhere. We're not expected to do it anywhere. And it's not integral to the development or maintenance of our faith. Meeting together is treated that way throughout the New Testament. And so if when you obey the Lord, people object, then you are as much in a, should I obey you or God, as you are in a situation of trying not to make your brother stumble. And so I think the best thing you can do is share your conviction as to why you believe that way. And it really is the other person's responsibility to realize that even if they think what you're doing is morally wrong, they still need to recognize that they ha- they should show you the same kind of charity that they're showing, you know, that they're expecting. So anyway, I, I think when it comes to worshiping, one of the reasons why I have not submitted our church entirely to every suggestion the government has made and been um, sort of as liberal as possible in our use of worship for in gathering as was workable 
with just a few, there were a couple places where I was a little bit more conservative over the course of this whole thing than we absolutely had to be. In most cases, we do as much as we're allowed to, so to speak. And sometimes even a little more than we're allowed to is because um, I believe that this is a command. Mm -hmm. That unless there is, that, yeah, I just think it's a command. And I I think that, um, I, I, I think that people who don't, agree with that are, are mistaken. But even though I think their view, I think their view is immoral. I think that if you believe people shouldn't get together at church, I think your view is immoral. And I think the reason it's immoral is because you're misunderstanding the importance of human contact with other humans, especially around spiritual things. And, And that you think that people isolating themselves for their physiological health is more important than it is. And people relating to each other for their psychological and spiritual health is less important than it really is. And because you've made a wrong judgment there, you're actually asking people to do something that's really inhuman and that's immoral to do. Okay. But that doesn't mean I'm going to judge them. I'm not going to condemn my brothers and sisters in Christ for holding that immoral view because it's a matter of conscience to them. And that's the best understanding that they hold. But I would also tell my brother and sister who's, who holds that view and thinks it is moral to stop judging the other person who's doing what he's do he or she is doing conscientiously, right? So that would be my answer. So if it's if you're scandalizing a person because you're obeying what the Lord says, you can't stop doing it to not upset them. Mm-hmm. And then the rest I've already said. If you want to hear an example of how uh, um, some friends worked this out on the Living Room podcast, yeah. Yeah, Brennan and Aaron did um, an episode where they were on opposite or different sides of what they thought they should do. And in, as it related to COVID and they talk a lot about how that practically worked out in their friendship. So you can go check that out. Yeah. We have had some other folks that like they, they're like in-laws they're, they're married in two families are literally a hundred miles apart. And the inflexibility of this, that people have had on both sides is just, it's just awful. And I'm just, I'm, I'm so sad that we, have been so extreme about this because we've been told if we're not extreme about it, we're bad people. Here are some questions about the Sustaining Renewal series. First, um, if it's possible for our conscience to be incorrect, how do we best seek clarity? Especially when others have differing opinions and if the Bible doesn't explicitly give an answer on certain topics. So the answer is yes, your conscience can be incorrect, right? Your conscience is your best faculty for understanding what's right or wrong, but it still is made up of your own psychology relative to what you believe is right and what you believe is wrong, right? Some of that is ingrained and sort of inborn in a certain way. We we seem to be born with a certain kind of um, moral software, right? Um, but a lot of it we're picking up in ways we don't even understand when we're re- real young. And our our moral software has to continually be updated, by learning and experience and is, frankly. And so, um, so let me give you an example of this. Um, there was a young woman in our church who was in her 20s. She had become a Christian. Her whole life, she had been pro-choice. She had been for abortion, women's right to choose abortion whenever they wanted. And she felt very strongly about that. And conscientiously, she felt like if you said something about abortion, her immediate, the work of her conscience was to say, you should support women's right to have abortions whenever they want. I was, I was preaching a sermon and I just basically said, all human beings are made in God's image, right? And we don't, we simply don't have the right to end a human life, including those in the womb. And the argument was a little more complicated than that, but not that much more complicated. Than that. And she just, she just, that penny just dropped for her 
that the thing being aborted was a human being. And that was made in God's image. And that just morally flipped the whole thing for 180 degrees. And she walked out 20 minutes later saying, having a conscientious reaction that women shouldn't get abortions whenever they please. Right. She hadn't worked out the politics of it. And like, you know, should I be against abortion law or whatever? But she's just like, no, I, before I was for women, just make whatever choice they felt was right. And now it's not just about women's feelings, what they feel is right. There's, it's more morally complicated than that. You have a human being, you shouldn't in that life. So our conscience can flip and turn based on our convictions, right? And oftentimes in that sense, our conscience is only as good as our convictions and our moral intuitions of our emotional mind. Those are constantly getting reprogrammed. The only thing you can do to try to make those, sure those are as good as possible is to learn and grow in wisdom and grow in godliness. And so some of those things you will find out that the Bible does really answer. Some of them you'll find out that the Bible doesn't, and you will approximate hopefully closer and closer to wisdom. And in some things, your conscience will probably never be totally calibrated to because the, what you need to calibrate it correctly isn't available or you're not able to sort out. So you, your conscience just won't be rightly calibrated. And that's one of the reasons why I think the apostle Paul says that that's all you can live up to, right? Like if you, you can, you could um, live with a clean conscience and still not be innocent. Mm-hmm. Right. And he said that that was true about him. He's like, listen, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. But, but you can't know that. Right. So the, the only way where this becomes blameworthy spiritually is if you don't want to grow, you don't want to learn and you don't want to change. So you don't want your conscience to be better calibrated. And then you do something your comp- conscience should have been calibrated for, but because you chose not to grow, your conscience didn't grow. And so you didn't have the right conscientious experience. So I think the demand of God here is obey your conscience and seek to grow in the development of your conscience and the recalibration of your conscience by forming the right convictions as you pursue the mind of Christ. Mm -hmm. And be open for your convictions to change and grow. Is there a difference between what the Bible talks about as singleness of mind and heart and what you were talking about as purity? Yeah. Purity is a little bit like holiness where it holds a couple definitions together. Right. But, but purity always has in it, there's a number of places where the primary meaning of purity is purity of heart. That is its singleness rather than its dividedness. That is that we have one love and no rivals. That's purity. Um, there are other places where the idea of purity as opposed to being soiled or to be involve ourselves in something defiling, right, is the idea of purity. And, and these concepts are related, but they, they're not overlapping without remainder, right? And so the concept of purity in scripture is both a... Like it has to do with singleness of mind, but it's also meant to be a mental picture. It's essentially purity is a metaphor, right? It's not contaminated and not soiled, right? So if I have a pure love, my, my love isn't contaminated by other loves and it's not soiled by my adulteries. It's it, neither of those are the case. Mm-hmm. And so I think that kind of view of purity should approximate it pretty well. Okay. This question is from the sermon on leadership integrity concerning your point that corruption feeds on silence. How do I make sure I am not remaining silent while also not creating a critical environment? Given that corruption rarely begins with creating a father-in-law suite in the temple, the tiny things that build a sense of that something is off tend to be easy to justify in my uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is the, there's this classic historical discussion about when should a nation engage in revolution? 
it because everybody's line of like when they've had enough and they can't take it anymore is different. And if you just wait, then like people keep getting cleared out. And by the time you're ready to like fight, like all these other people that have already been ready to fight or have all been cleared out. And the people who aren't yet ready to fight, but don't want to stand with you. Right. And so if you're like, well, if we're gonna have a revolution, we all have to agree so we can all fight together. Right. Like where is that place where you take your stand and say this far, but no farther. Right. Yeah. Um, and on, honestly, the sad answer to this is that it's a, it's a matter of prudence. Like you have to make a wisdom informed decision of what you think is the right thing to do at the right time, the right way in the right proportion. But I think you start with stuff that's a little lighter and you, you attack it a little more lightly. So if I see somebody doing something I think is a minor corruption, I'll go to them and I'll say, look, I don't, I don't think that was quite right. That just, that doesn't smell right. It doesn't feel right. Right. It's a little, it's a little corruption. I come in not super hot. Right. And as the corruption gets worse, my stridency is going to increase and intensify mm-hmm. to some point where I feel like at this point I can no longer travel with this person. Right. And then I say, this is where, this is my division line. And so this is where I'm going to take my strongest stand. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Um, but yeah, I, I wish I wish there was a way. But when you when you smell something that doesn't smell right, you just say this doesn't smell right. So you, you try to keep it in proportion. And if you keep if you correct things at these lower levels, but you're not really attacking people terribly, you're just saying, "Hey, do we really want to do it that way?" You know, then I think you have a much better chance of correcting things in a good direction. Yeah, it's easier for people to change when it's not a big, mm-hmm. not, not as big of a deal. It's just a little right. off. Yeah. Right. All right. Next question. What's the difference between working hard and being focused during the week and it becoming a consuming idol for six days of the week? So this is on actually Luke's sermon about work and rest. Yeah. So there isn't a, a steadfast rule about what a workaholic is, right? I mean, that's part of the reason why people fall into it. Um, there it's, you know, like you can, if you like, for example, if you're single or if you're an empty nest or you don't have kids at home, sometimes people who want to advance in their careers will work a lot of hours a week and that's okay. There's, there's a certain percentage. Um, almost all of these people are men. It's like one in about a thousand is the, I, my understanding is the percentage where they're just men and they're wired to just like working all the time and they don't like doing anything else. It's all they like. It's like, it's one in a thousand. These ten people tend to be CEOs and they tend to make a lot of money. They tend to have really bad marriages. Their kids tend to hate them. Like they're just like a very narrow per- group. And, but for most people, you're just trying to figure out what you're doing. And, and the, again, like you can't, the question is, are, I think is, are you present and available in the times when you're not working properly? Like, so when you leave work and you go home and you're eating, you're talking to your wife while you're making dinner together or something like that. Are you listening to her? Are you talking to her? Or are you thinking about work? Are you, are you, are you squeezing work into every place you possibly can squeeze it in when you're not working? Right. Those sorts of things. And I, I think that you have to decide through pre-decision, like when you're not focused on work. So like, imagine you have like a, on the Sabbath, like you have a devotional time, you're talking to the Lord you want to live the best life you can in him. Maybe you sit down and you go, okay, what do I think in this state of mind, my best state of mind for this, what do I think are the real markers of like worshiping my job and write them down and then use that to test it against um, Charles Dunig, the guy who wrote, um, the, I think it's the power of habit is the name of the book a few years ago. 
he talked about the power of predecision that you you're when you're tempted to do something you're already in an altered state of consciousness you're not really thinking clearly so if you want to decide for example if you want to decide if you want to eat ice cream at 8 30 p.m 8 30 p.m when you want ice cream is not the time to make that decision it's 6 30 a.m like when you're doing your devotions on friday where you decide if you're going to eat ice cream after does that make sense so like yeah deciding what counts as idolatry like what kind of actions point to it and then marking those out in your life so that when they happen you're like oh that's what that is mm-hmm. that makes sense now, let me give you an example of this like there was um uh there there have been points in my like when i just when i determined what behaviors were danger behaviors in my relationships with women i worked with i didn't decide that when i was having a relationship with the women i worked with and then saying, is this not good? Is this, is this dynamic not good? No, I decided those like with men studying what happens to people in cross-gender relationships at work where they spend a lot of time with people, the dynamics that tend to flow out of them. And then what are the warning signs? And then what are the pre-warning signs? And then mm-hmm. I memorized the pre-warning signs when I wasn't around any women I was working with. Mm-hmm. And over the course of my life, that's that's been very helpful, right? Because then when I saw some of those pre-warning signs, I was like, oh, there it is. Because I'm not in an altered state of consciousness yet. I'm still thinking as clearly as I can be. Similarly with work, you know, there's a lot of fear and anxiety about like keeping up and winning and getting ahead. And it's, you got to be unplugged from work to decide what are the criteria for not trading work as an idol. And once you do those, then you stick with them, you know, talk yeah. with them, talk with people about them that you think are wise, check them with your, if you have a spouse or kids, you know, you can check them with your spouse and kids sometimes. Uh, okay. Another work question. How do you suggest people in church ministry to do Sabbath? And a little bit more specifically, can you speak to the a workaholic whose work is full time ministry, and just and who justifies work consuming them because it's for the kingdom? Okay, those are two questions. One is, um, I think Luke was right when he was when he said because somebody said uh, he said somebody asked him if you could have Sabbath on two days, and he said don't do that. And I think what that means is like taking half a day on Tuesday and half a day on Friday yes. because the the original Sabbath is Friday evening to Saturday mm-hmm. evening. It's parts of two days, right? So I don't think Luke disagrees with God. I think he means splitting it up. Yes. And so I think that that's probably right. I think for a lot of believers, you can do that. So like I actually had a new discussion with my spouse about this recently with Lexi. I, I said, I want to do this from six o'clock on Friday to six o'clock PM on Saturday. So I can work a little bit on Friday if I feel like I need to. I can do preparation for the Sabbath on Friday if I need to, which is a day off for me. And then by the time I get to about six on Saturday and I'm looking ahead to my Sunday sermon, I can work a little bit in that evening if I feel like I need to, but I can take that full 24 hours from evening to evening. Does that make sense? I think that, I mean, I don't know hardly anybody in ministry for whom that wouldn't work for. They could do that if they wanted to. Okay. Secondly, I'd say, um, and I think that would work for people in ministry. Like the second question says, however, yeah, it's tough. If you work like people who work in any like helping profession where, where they, their daily work is somebody else's crisis, right? It's real. It's real hard with ministry. It's even more because we believe in the eternal effects of the work that we don't do. Right. The idea that like, if you don't, you could do evangelism this afternoon and somebody could not go to hell forever. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that, like if you think that through, it'll make you crazy. Right. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why God created the Sabbath to be like, yeah, ma- that's true. That's my problem. That's not your problem. Like, like for example, just like try to think of any passage in the Bible where God tells his people, 
Like they're not working hard enough. Like you need to work and work and work and work and just work more. You got to work more to please God and to receive God's blessing and to find his abundance. You just don't find that. It's just not in the Bible. I mean, yeah, work six days, rest one. That's in the Bible, right? And there are places in Jesus' ministry where he seems to be working like a workaholic. Like there's one point where his parents come try to get him because they think he's going nuts. And it, it appears to be because so many people are following him that he's not taking a break, right? But then there's other points where Jesus takes a break, right? And so, but we don't know how much time is between any of those. But I, I would be very surprised if from Friday night to Saturday morning or from Saturday night, Jesus wasn't taking a break mm-hmm. or doing things that he thought were appropriate on the Sabbath. Yeah. And I think you got to ask yourself, is it producing, is it producing what you want fruit wise in your life? And the first people to ask are the people in your life. Okay. Next question. This is from um, Sunday's Sunday. sermon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that was about comprehensive discipleship. How should we counsel someone who becomes a believer, but is married to a same sex spouse and has children? I feel like I need to do a couple like disclaimers before I answer this. Like, sure. Um, I, I mean, I have a, I have a special, I have a special, I don't know, place in my heart, I guess, for same sex attracted people who say, what does God really want? And I'll do it. Even mm-hmm. if um, the desire I have for the sexual fulfillment I want is withheld. Like I, like I can't pursue it. Um, I think it's really, really difficult. I, I also mm-hmm. think it's really difficult when for moral reasons, same sex attracted people have tried to create stable monogamous relationships because they believe that they're inherently good. And when people in those same sex relationships have sought to embrace life by opening their life hospitably to children, Right. So children are an inherent good. Caring and loving them is an inherent good. And even though the Bible states very straightforwardly that um, same sex sexual union is sinful and homosexual desires are disordered desires, um, just as most of our sexual desires are disordered desires. And um, there are many, many ways to engage in acts that God calls sexually moral. The, Mm -hmm. the, for most heterosexual people who have disordered desires and and struggle with sexual immorality, there is a means by which they can literally use the neurology of their sexuality in a way that is pleasing, that is within God's confines, right? They can marry a person and have sex with them. And even though what those people will experience is not full and total sexual wholeness, like when Adam and Eve had sex for the first time or something, um, it's still, it's like operational. It has a certain kind of functionality to it that a same sex attracted person who can't operate in a cross orientation, romantic relationship can't access. And that's really tough. Mm-hmm. And for, for especially um, some, a lot of same sex attracted men, um, same sex attraction often comes with a kind of hypersexuality. And so like not having sex and being celibate as a same sex attracted man with a hyper, hyper, hyper drive sexuality is extremely difficult. So when, when I say what scripture teaches about this, which is restrictive, I just want you to know that like, like I care about this um, and it, it matters to me. Um, I do have dear friends who are same-sex attracted men who are celibate and who have embraced um, what God teaches 
relative to this. And also I know same-sex attracted men who are in cross-gender marriages. Now, so, so there's, there's two major theological questions here. One is relative. The one of, one of them is relative to a same-sex marriage. That is, is there such a thing? Now, legally, there is such a thing, right? The, the state can say any contract exists that it wants to. And many states in the, in the world, including the United States, have said now at this point in our history that you can make this contract, that two people of the same sex can have a marriage contract under law. That's not the same question as whether or not it's a marriage, like humanly speaking and spiritually speaking, right? I tend to believe that the moral arguments made from scripture that a lot of Roman Catholic scholars have worked on and evangelicals have worked on, that a same-sex marriage isn't a marriage qua marriage is correct. Hmm. That is, that the deficit, the reason why we have same-sex marriage as a contractual arrangement in America is because um, judicial voices in places like Iowa and California defined marriage as the legal way that we appropriate or signal our true romantic other, right? And since it's that, people should have the right to designate their true romantic other however they please, right? They know who they're in love with, so they should designate it. Now, historically, biblically, and Christianly, that's not the definition of marriage, right? That's one of the reasons why um, people on the left in America talked about, quote, marriage equality, and people on the right didn't say talk about marriage inequality, what they talked about was the definition of marriage, right? Mm-hmm. That was always what conservative people would say. They say, and, and that's why, because they would say, this isn't inequality. This is a difference in definition, right? If you say that calling a woman a woman rather than her being a man is inequality, when in fact she is a woman, and in fact a man is a man, we don't know, normally think about that as inequality. It's just calling things what they are, right? And so um, people of this view would say that the definition of marriage is the comprehensive union of complementary genders in an irrevocable and permanent covenant before God that is that is um, in which people are bound together and seek to receive children in a generative way. It's like it's a whole like big ball of things. Does that make sense? And the the designation of your romantic other is just one part of that. And what cannot be reduced from that equation is inherent procreativity and the complementarity of the gender union. That is that it's a man and a woman, right? And so people can say like, well, but what about infertile couples, right? But you have to enter into marriage with the intention of pursuing these things. Does that make sense? Now- Um, so one, one way to go about this is to say, if two people who have become believers entered into a same sex union legally, right? That's, I mean, you could do whatever you want. That's a legal contract. You can decide to, to quote divorce, right? The question is, are you under the same spiritual moral obligations in marriage? That is that you, you marriage is irrevocable covenant, right? And I, I think that the answer to that is, is that spiritually speaking, you have not made the same irrevocable covenant scripture speaks of. Okay. I don't think it exists. I don't think I'm wrong about that. I, for me, that's not a close call. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, listen, I want to say very clearly, that does not mean that the moral nature of the same sex union has no positive things to be said about it. Any human beings that seek to abuse each other less 
by committing to each other, sharing each other's needs, helping each other get through the difficulties of life. The more the same-sex couple has approximated the comprehensive nature of marriage as seen as the ideal in the Bible, I think all of those are inherent goods, right? I'm like, I'm not saying they don't love each other. Mm-hmm. I, do, I, I don't think they love each other in the sense that they know in the full-orbed, God-sized way that they're doing everything in the true good of the other, right? Because then, then there's the issue of sexual the sexual morality. But that doesn't mean that many of the things that they're doing aren't loving, and therefore they aren't loving each other on all of those levels. So I think same-sex marriages can be very loving, and, I, and I'm not saying that there isn't love there. What I'm saying is from God's, the pers- perspective of the formation of God's first institution, that is marriage, two people of the same gender cannot enter into that union because they are not of complementary genders. And that is part of the definition and the very, the very foundation of what that marriage is. Does that make sense? Now, so then the question is this, but now what? Because anytime we find ourselves in a, in a situation that God is not affirmed, the answer is not always to just throw everything away. Because you may have entered into obligations or difficulties that now you have to like do the best you can with, right? right? So if a non-Christian young woman marries a, a not, if a Christian young woman marries a non-Christian guy, and then she's like, "Oh crap, I wasn't supposed to do that." The Bible says doesn't say now. Well, then divorce him. No, the right. Bible's like, no, you're married, so you got to sort that out now, and you got to love him, and you got to raise your kids as best you can. You got to deal with what you've already done and do the best thing you can with it. So, what does the same sex couple do? Now here I'm moving out into more speculative territory and we shouldn't treat my word like God's holy writ. Okay. But here's the best prudential understanding I have right now, which is this. I believe the most fundamental moral right in this situation is the right of children to live in close proximity to both their parents. I think it's one of the reasons why nobody has the right to just get divorced because they're not in love anymore. Right, Because every child has the right to live in close proximity to both their parents, to be nurtured comprehensively by both their parents, whatever possible. Right, So this would include being in the military or things that have like another concentric circle of responsibility drawing that parent out. But the desire is always for them to be in the same household. So now you've got an issue where you've got two same-sex parents who've made a covenantal commitment to these children mm-hmm. to be be in the role of their parent, and that child's right is for them to be in close proximity to both their parents. And both of the same-sex couple, these people are operatively their two parents. Right. So now what? Mm-hmm. As, as far as I could tell, now I don't know if this is possible functionally. As far as I can tell, the best thing to do here is for these two parents to A, div- um, legally divorce and not consider themselves or act as though they are married or label themselves in that way to relabel themselves into something like a covenantal friendship or something like that. Mm-hmm. And to let go of the sexual nature of their comprehensive union. Right. And to stay present for these kids who thou they have now taken under their care and are holding in, in their responsibility. Right now, if you told me, that Alexi and I had to divorce, essentially like legally divorce, not refer ourselves as marriage, stay living together so as to fulfill our responsibility to our kids. Man, I would tell you that's going to be really, really hard. Because yeah. I love her romantically, not just personally. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, 
but I, I'll, I will say this, the only integrity I can offer in this, in terms of like me being part of this is to say, I didn't have sex till I was married and I really wanted to with lots of people and had plenty of opportunity. And the idea of being continent in my sexuality was the biggest pain in my life, frankly, in those years. Just wanting to be able to do that and not doing it because God told me I couldn't, even though everything in my nature and my personal orientation said I wanted to, it was natural, I wanted to do it, they wanted to do it, right? And I didn't because I had a, con- I had a conviction, right? And all through my marriage, I've had, I've had plenty of opportunities to have affairs and I have not had any affairs. I just haven't done it because I'm not allowed to, even though it was in my nature and in my orientation and how I'm wired and they wanted to and I want like all that, right? Because... I have this responsibility to my wife, but I also have this responsibility I took to my children. Hmm. And so I have burned to ashes many of my like sub dreams about how I could have pursued happiness my own way so as to fulfill my covenant to my wife, and to fulfill my covenant to my children. That I think that if I was same-sex attracted, that it would be even harder. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's impossible. I don't I don't think anything's impossible with God. I don't I don't think being continent in our sexuality is impossible. I think that we tend to think about sex more like Freud would than like Jesus would. And I think no matter how hypersexualized we are, we need to remember that we follow a God who was himself celibate and single in his earthly ministry. I mean, he, he Jesus was single into his 30s until his murder. And I think that it's important for us to recognize that, that like he was born as a man with a sexuality. There were plenty of women around him. I'm sure many of them threw themselves at him and he, he lived the life that he lived. He was in control of his sexuality throughout his life in service to God. And I think we can do that too. Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't, I'm not telling you that my answer there is the best thing ever. I'm not saying it's perfect. There may be some misunderstandings in it to the best of my understanding of scripture and people and pastoring them, that is what I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's what is asked of all of us in different ways. And in some cases it probably is harder for certain people. Yeah, I, I, to- I totally believe that. It's one of the reasons why I think you just, you have to take your hat in your hand every time you talk about um, LGBTQ and so on, maybe not so much B, but LG and mm-hmm. Q and, and it's, uh, T and Q. I, I, even Q, I, like sometimes I don't have a lot of sympathy for people who believe in queering ideology because I think it's so wrongheaded. But I, I think you can have a queering orientation where you just like you just don't feel like you fit any of the norms, right? Queering is essentially like the rejection of all sexual norms, right? And that they shouldn't even exist. And um, and I know there's some people who that's just sheer ideology for them. Like they just think that all these are constructs and we should just get rid of them and be free and blah, 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 blah. I don't have a lot of sympathy for those people other than that I think they've been deceived, right? But for people who like, they're just like, look, I realize I'm a female, but I don't feel feminine. I don't feel like I fulfill any of these feminine roles. This whole idea that like I have to be this woman character, like I have to be a lady and I have to be all this stuff. Like it just, it, like I don't connect with it at all, right? I mean, I, man, I think I have a lot of sympathy for that, mm-hmm. right? That doesn't mean we can't understand a spiritual femininity from scripture. But I do think what often happens in churches that don't pay a lot of attention to the experience of LGBTQ people is it's very easy for us to say this, this 70% of women can connect with this sketch of femininity. Therefore this sketch is normative and it is constraining for all. And then we don't allow the tolerances and the ambiguity within biblical femininity around the edges in like, in like varying, like there's a lot of biblical femininities 
that are all feminine and a lot of biblical masculinities that are all masculine Mm -hmm. that norm in certain ways, but then not in others. And man, that's always hard for people, you know, to have certainty and ambiguity in the same concept. It's just tough. But I think, I think trying to love LGBTQ people well will also help us understand normative masculinity and femininity well without doing what like, you know, California and Madison school systems want to do, which is just wipe out the entire concept of normative masculinity and femininity for all human beings so that all of our young people can be completely confused about their gender and sex and what it means to live in gendered in the world. Also in this, in the AMA on Sunday, you had mentioned just if you're in situations like that to seek out a mentor and someone who knows you and to walk with yeah. someone in that. And that I think that's really important as well. Yeah. And I'd love to talk to you, like, especially in yeah. these kind of situations, there's not yeah. a lot of them. And man, I'd love to personally talk with you. I mean, I'm not, I'm right. not too busy. Now. Sit down. How was this sermon about comprehensive discipleship relevant for someone who is currently single or maybe single for his or her entire life? And this is because you were also talking about, in the context of Nehemiah 13, the comprehensive union um, of marriage. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I guess I would say that one of the reasons why I expanded the concept out from don't marry someone who's not a believer if you're a believer to mm-hmm. the bigger, more general idea is discipleship is comprehensive. Is so that everybody can start from the basic idea that a, the reason why I'm not supposed to marry a non-believer if I'm a believer, is because of the comprehensively intimate nature of my relationship with God. Now, it's not as comprehensive as a husband and wife in that you don't have physical sexual intimacy with God, right? But there are ways in which God is more comprehensively engaging with the whole of you than you could ever have with a spouse. I mean, there's, there's stuff about my wife. She just like, I don't know how to explain it to her. She can't get inside my head. You know, like, like we can create a human together inside her womb, but I can't really get inside her head or heart or me, no matter how hard we try. And so there is a kind of intimacy you have with God that you can never have with a spouse. And there's a kind of intimacy you can have with a spouse that you're not supposed to have with God. And that's just the way things are. And so I think that one of the things a single person hopefully can take from this is maximize your intimacy with God. It can be incredibly broad, incredibly fulfilling, and, and incredible. Just like there's, that is a huge part of it. And I think some single people um, maybe don't do that. And for me, when I was single and I was longing to connect with the spouse, like I just had, I had to pour a lot of my intimate thoughts and feelings out to God in prayer, in talking to Him, and thinking about Him, because that was my most intimate relationship, you know. And it, and my relationship with God was really strengthened by that, right? And then secondly. The discipleship is comprehensive. That means it's everything. So if you're single, what that means is discipleship is in everything that's in your life, just like it's in everything that's in a married person's life. And I think that, I think that single people can think that through too. Like you can be single. The question is, is everything in your life part of your discipleship? Mm-hmm. That's the relevance. Is it or isn't it? And so it could be that your longing for a spouse isn't under the comprehensive discipleship of Christ, but also like, if you take out the responsibilities and roles of being a spouse and in that place, perhaps a parent too, not for everybody, but for, for a lot of people, one of the things that means is, is just the, the pie chart of how you order your life changes, but it doesn't change that all of your life is in service to God and you're doing all of it as his disciple. In that sense, it's not all that different. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. so I would say in that sense, my hope is that single people would find it very relevant. There's a few other questions about how 
um, the sermon works out in different situations. Um, but you just mentioned future spouse. Is it biblical to pray for your future spouse as in like an idea of your future spouse, not a specific person yet mm-hmm. that you have in mind? Um, for example, should we pray specific prayers for their protection and spiritual growth? Um, it's not biblical in the sense that the Bible tells you to do it. So by the regulative principle, right, if it has to be in the Bible to be biblical, right, the answer is no. But by the normative principle, the Bible doesn't forbid it, and it seems to go along with the logic of the Bible. Yeah, it's perfectly fine, right? There's no reason you can't do that. There's a lot of parents that pray for their kids' future spouses, and there's no reason you can't pray for yours. I mean, if you have if you have a future spouse, I mean, if you die single, then you may have been praying for no one all those years, you know? Um, so there's that. <laughs> um, yeah. So there is an assumption built into that praying, but... Um, if anything, if you have a desire and you want to be married, the best place to put that desire is by is prayer, prayer and bringing it to God. So you don't know what the outcome is going to be, if he's going to give you a spouse or not, but mm-hmm. there's nothing stopping you from praying about it. Okay. What does uh, the term equally yoked mean? Does this refer to two believers or two believers at similar spiritual maturity levels? Let me read you the, the verse in question and then I'll do okay. that. So this is 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can they have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? And what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Okay. Now, in the context of 1 Corinthians 6, the main thing that's being discussed there is business arrangements. So there, there are like lawsuits and they're talking about some of these arrangements. And so the most immediate context is um, to not be yoked together with an unbeliever in like business where like they can do totally immoral things and you're trying to do what's right and they destroy you, right? Um, however, the statement in scripture is general, which, me- which means this applies to everything. So a yoke, for those who don't know, is like imagine a horizontal piece of wood with two loops on it that you'd put cattle's heads through and you would yoke the two cattle together. Because remember, they don't really have horses at this time in the way that you would in later Europe. So Mm -hmm. most farm work was done by like oxen, right? And so a yoke fit over the front of an oxen and you would hook them both together. You'd yoke them together. And when you did that, the oxen were forced to move in parallel. They had to move together. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so because they were forced to move together. So you can think of this with with uh, like a human three-legged race, right? So you're going to race and you tie, you know, your right and their left leg together. And so you have to kind of like run together. And, and one, if one person goes to your right and the other person goes to the left, you end up just falling on your face. Yeah. Does that make sense? You're tied together, okay? And so what the Apostle Paul is saying, don't tie yourself together for some purpose, right? The purpose of plowing. Don't tie yourself together for some purpose with somebody who's an unbeliever. Because you don't share the same anything. Like on some level, yeah, we can have a lot of similarities with our non-Christian people and there's a lot of non-Christian people that are moral and so on. But at the end of the day, your loyalties are divided. They believe in some idolatry and you believe in the Lord, the God of Israel. And the two don't have as much in common, Mm -hmm. especially morally. And so the more a union is moral in nature, spiritual in nature, and faithfulness oriented in nature, the more this command is central to that question. And so Christians for many, many years have said, well, what could be more central than marriage? Right? So even though this passage doesn't explicitly refer to marriage and the immediate context is business arrangements, it applies to marriage. 
It is a general command about yoking yourself together. And there's nothing more tying together than tying the knot of marriage. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So it applies theologically, but completely. And so, so the question being then, okay, does that just mean a Christian versus a non-Christian or different levels of Christian, right? Okay, so th- what this passage forbids is Christian, non-Christian. There's no question about that, right? And so that's it. However, sometimes um, you, you'll see like a fairly devout believer, somebody who's like pretty serious about their faith, and they want to marry somebody who's pretty nominal or says that they're a believer, but they're like, they're clearly not that into it. Let me give you a quick story. So there was this young woman who came to me, brought her fiance. She was a churchgoer. She was like, I love Jesus. Jesus is fantastic. She, she's dating this guy. And I'm like, are you a Christian? And he's like, yep, I'm a Christian. Because he knew that's what I wanted to hear, right? And I was like, so what does that, what does that mean to you, right? And he just gave a very lackluster answer about what that meant to him. I said, I said, okay, let me, let me ask you a question. You're a Packer fan, right? Like a big Packer fan. He's like, oh yeah, I'm a huge Packer fan. I was like, awesome, right? Imagine you were having a, like a Super Bowl Packers party, okay? Like honest to God, Super Bowl Packers party. And you, uh, and but you knew Jesus, like Jesus was your friend. And he was like put on the, he was like talking about the party. And he said, let's say the guy's name was Bill. He's like, Bill, only green balloons and stuff. No gold. Like this was, this is literally the example I gave. Right. And I said, would you, would you do green and gold or would you just do green? And he was like, I do green and gold. I was like, you're not a Christian. Okay. He's like, why are you judging me? I was like, I was like, I'm not condemning you. Like, sending you to hell myself, but I'm just telling you discernment wise, you aren't a Christian. Like, if you wouldn't change the decorations at your party for Jesus, you're not going to do anything for Jesus. Like you're not a Christian. And he was like, huh? You know? And the girl was like aghast. She was like, oh, you're telling my fiance he's not a Christian. I'm like, listen, I can't stop you from marrying this guy. Or are you guys from getting married? I understand that you're in love and all of that. But listen, if you're a Christian, he's not. And you're not equally yoked. Does that make sense? But you know, when, when somebody who says that they're like a really devout believer comes to you with their non-Christian fiance, you do have to wonder a little bit about their faith because they should know what they're doing. Why don't they, you know? And I've seen this, like, there's some, like, like this tends to happen more with women because there's, uh, there's fewer men in the church. So women are just more tempted to find a guy outside the church. Okay. It's just a demographic thing. It doesn't mean women are bad or something. And so, but man, they find these non-Christian guys and they're like, they find ways to rationalize it to themselves. And these yeah. are like, you know, girls who go to crew or intervarsity like every week, they have quiet times and stuff. And like in like they, but they just, this, they have, it's the way I talked about on Sunday. It's this willful misunderstanding. Like they have, because they so badly want to be loved and cherished in this human way, which is a good desire. They have concocted methodologies in their mind to feel justified. And so to go to an earlier question, coordinated their conscience not to um, tell them that they're wrong. So that when anybody says something to them, they just go, nope, you're wrong. Yeah. So anyway, that's what unequally yoked means. Now, I think it can be foolish to marry somebody who's not nearly as focused on growing in their faith as you. And most women will be upset by that because they want a spiritual leader, not just a person who is vaguely Christian. And so um, when women are really thinking in spiritual terms, they they want a guy not who's just a believer, but a, a believer who's going to push them forward, right? Because Ephesians 5 says the role of a husband is to prepare his wife in sanctification. 
the biggest role in his life to love her is to love her in all things, but his biggest role is to present her to Christ as part of the spotless bride, having been part of her watch washing and being prepared for him. And um, that's, that's different. You know what I mean? And so that's one thing I say to men. So if you're like a man listening to this, you're a Christian guy and you're wondering why the women in the church are not interested in you, um, it could be you have to brush your teeth or get a new haircut. Um, but it, it could be that you think that because you're a Christian, that's enough. But what those women understand by relating to you is that you're not going to spiritually lead, but they're going to be dragging you along in your spiritual faith. And so they don't find that attractive. Women are wired to look for men who are at least their equal and who will be their leader. People say all the time that women, like men outmarry themselves with awesome women. Like I get this all the time. Oh, that guy outkicked his coverage. Oh, he married up big time. And guys always say this, like they don't really believe it, but they say it all the time to pacify women. Oh yeah, man. I like, I married way above myself when I married, blah, 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 you know? And I think that's dumb because, because women don't do that. Women don't like marry down unless they like have to. Right, like if they get scared enough and they have to, sometimes they will. If they have any other option, they won't. Yeah. And so, like, they usually they didn't think they were when they married that guy, you know. And yeah. so, like, I think for guys, just like man, listen, women want leaders. They want women, men who are at least circles, and so don't joke around about like marrying up. You need to step up. Yes. And then they will be like, oh, if I married him, I would be marrying up. That's what they're really thinking. The average woman wants to think that they are marrying up, not that they married down for you. Yeah. You know. So I think there are some guys that they, if they can kick themselves in the pants a little on this one, that women aren't just looking for another believer. They're looking for a man who will lead them spiritually. And that doesn't necessarily mean like you'll do a lot of great Bible studies with them. What it means is, is like your faith is clearly growing. You have spiritual fervor. You have spiritual fervor. Yeah. You're growing in godliness. And that's yeah. contagious of the relationship. Mm-hmm. And she can talk about her faith with you because your faith is growing. It, it doesn't mean you're like a seminary professor. Or like you have this like super formalized spiritual leadership in the relationship. It means, but it means that like, she, like if she didn't grow in God, she would fall behind in the spiritual nature of your relationship. And she doesn't want to do that. So, so you're spurring her on by your own growth and taking personal responsibility to grow in Christ. And when you do that, it draws her to do so as well. And she likes growing with you. Women love intimacy. I mean, like everybody does, but women, especially like in this particular way. So anyway, I think, I think that there are some guys, I think there are some guys at high point who, if they stepped up some of these things, they would find more women interested in them or Christian women interested in them. I do want to say two very quick things to women. Sure. What you said Um, first, yeah, be careful about that spiritual leader category and, and what you're idealizing in that, because I think I've just, I've mentored a lot of women who have been dating great guys, like godly, wonderful men who they're maybe not extroverted or like they're conflating personality with spiritual leadership. So just be careful with that category. Um, and what you are putting in that category. And then second, yeah, if you are dragging someone along, you might be dragging them the rest of your life. <laughs> so if you, feel, if you feel that now, just that, that is a, it could change, but it also could not change. When their life gets sped up and they have more responsibilities and more pulling at them, the idea that they're going to 
take the time and effort it takes to pull back and really grow and have that solid core is lower, not higher. Okay. Let's move on to some flirt to convert clarifications. So you okay. addressed briefly on Sunday um, in the AMA, but we had some more questions about it. So yeah, this is one of our devout listeners from Missouri sent these in. <laughs> Um, so you told the church, Nick, to in a recent sermon, I don't, it, was, it wasn't the same sermon, to be hyper wary of pastors who use sensuality to promote spiritual behavior to the point that you said the high point elders should fire you if you ever did this. Mm-hmm. So flirting to convert sounds like a way of using sensuality to promote spiritual behavior. How do these teachings reconcile? Yeah, listen, if by flirt to convert, it means like licking a guy <laughs> and be interested in God, I am against that for sure. Um, so, okay. So, so anytime like a young man, a young woman around each other, you, you might say this for all men and women, but like when men or women around each other, there is a baseline of sexual energy that exists no matter what. There's no such thing as a fully platonic energy between men and women, normally speaking. Okay. Sometimes you can get that right. Like, but generally speaking, that's not what normally happens. So flirting is accessing that, um, my definition of flirting is accessing that sexual energy such that in the interaction, the man realizes, you know, he's a man and that you're a woman and that you are, um, and that you like you engage with that in some way, but in a way that is not overtly sensual or enticing. So it is like, it's bringing some of that energy to bear so as to access the masculine and femininity of the male and female without engaging in sexual enticement, right? Those are different. And mm-hmm. if, it, if it gets to the point of sexual enticement, you are no longer flirting, right? And you are definitely in the wrong. So if a woman uses any form of sexual enticement as the sort of flirt to convert, doesn't work, okay? But if she uses the general energy of her of her sexuality, the, the, just the nature of the relationship between men and women. And that gets men like in the proximity of hearing the gospel. I don't think that's wrong. Like, like sometimes like guys will hear there's a lot of girls at a youth group and they'll just show up because there's a lot of girls at the youth group. Right. And, but then they're going to hear the message, right? That's not the same thing as a girl sending a guy a nude so that he'll show up at youth group to hear the gospel. Right. Mm-hmm. And so obviously there's a little bit of prudence and like, wisdom in like what that line is. But I, I think women should use, should use flirtatious energy without using sensual energy. And one of the reasons this is important, I was talking with my um, Orthodox priest friend um, and Father Gregory, and he was like, yeah, one of the, one of the problems with the hookup culture and pornographic saturation is that it's made culture so sensual that men and women in some ways only know how to be sensual and they don't know how to flirt. Flirting is supposed to be both sexually energetic and innocent in nature and sensuality takes sexual energy to the, to the realm of enticement, trying to draw the person in by accessing their sexual energy and overriding their deliberation, right? By bringing them into an altered state of consciousness of attraction, right? And slicing those is what you got to do. So if you're going to flirt to convert, you can do the first and you can't do the latter. Does that make sense? So the general interest of men and women, so as to bring them into friendship and into spaces where they can hear the gospel, fine. Using enticement to do so, wrong. If you're like making out with a guy so that he'll come to church, that's enticement. Yeah. 
if a guy's interested in you because you're a girl and he's just interested in like it's mm-hmm. there and you're like listen like hey come to this thing with me fine or if he's like hey would you go out with me and be like listen come to this thing at my church and i'll be there right yeah. and i'll talk to you fine right so like yeah. you gotta i you gotta use a little wisdom yeah those examples are helpful because as you're as you were talking i it did make sense like logically what you were, I understood the words you were saying, but yeah. because our culture is so saturated, I was trying to think of yeah. like, what are the examples of each one? So, right. so also I think of a woman as leading guy on that's, that will fall into a similar okay. category of injustice. It's not, yeah. it's not a sin because it's sensual. It's a sin because it's unjust. You're like, you're dragging on their attraction or their interest in you without telling them information they would want if you would offer it to them. That is so like, if you won't, date them if they're not a Christian, which is what you should do. Right. At some point you're like, listen, I, I feel like, I feel like you're interested in me. And on a general like boy girl level, I'm interested in you too. Like you're, you're fine. But like, I'm only going to date a believer in Jesus. Yeah. It's just a, it's just a thing. And I'm not going to give that up. If you want to investigate that, I'd love to connect you with it. But like, I'm just going to tell you right now, mm-hmm. I want to share my deepest intimacy of faith with my deepest intimate romantic partner. And I'm not going to enter into a dating relationship and build a natural affection that's going to make me fall in love with somebody and ultimately marry them who doesn't share that. I'm not even going to play around with that. So Mm -hmm. we can be friends and we can even go to these things together. But like, you just need to understand that's not going to happen. Does that make sense? So leading on and enticing are out. That second question about me referring to injustice relative to these things. Yeah. I do have some bits on this that I have not widely published yet that I think are really important. I, I really think that a lot of what's going on in hookup culture is fundamentally, un, it's an injustice. You're engaging in injustice and you're also engaging in brutality. You're perpetrating harms. And sometimes I think people have to use that language and see that language. Like, what do you think happens to a girl that you sleep with or even like a guy that you sleep with four or five times and then you like leave them for greener pastures? Like you, do you really think that that was just consensual sex? It wasn't like all of those relationships have built within, in them, the hopeful promise of equality and mutual pursuit, but it's, that's never the case, right? In many of those cases, the hookups happen within a relationship of power differentials. Like people talk about this, like in offices, like having sex with your boss, like your boss is more to blame than you because of the power differential. Right. But that's true just in straightforward attractiveness or like what Hmm. year you are in school or like, um, like what future you seem like you'll have or whatever. Right. Or how well dressed you are. Like there's usually a power differential in most dating relationships. And when that is the case, the person with more power can abandon the other person whenever they feel like it and often do. And so this is like you get women who will sleep with a guy and she never calls him right? When she slept with him, she was hoping her desire was to be called, was that this would be a deposit on a longer term relationship. And the guy knew that. He knew that's what she wanted, right? Even though she's not allowed to say that because of our modern culture, she doesn't want to be used and and left, right? She's not allowed to say it and he doesn't have to think about it, right? That like, that is brutality, Right. And, and what you're also doing is you're making a deposit of mistrust in her mind and heart for every other guy she talks to the rest of her life, including the husband who's going to be living with her the rest of her life. And he's going to deal with your crap. And like, you, these are all, these aren't just like, oh, that's impurity. It's impure because it's defiling. It's defiling doesn't mean like the person's too dirty to touch. It, it ruins the thing. 
it's and it's not because a woman is quote defiled in that kind of situation or a man because she's now dirty and can't be touched the defiling happens in your psychology it can yeah, happen in your body with like, yeah i mean it can yeah. happen in your body through like stds and like stuff mm-hmm. like that but but like it also have, yeah, it happens in your mind, in your psychology, in your mm-hmm. trust, in your hopes, what you think you can expect from a man or a woman, what 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 it means to trust somebody in terms of just like the signals that they send you morally and personally and what has to be done in order to get somebody to care about you. The things that women think they have to do to get men to care about them. Like, listen, it's it's horrific. Like I listen to some of these stories of what teenage girls do in high schools to get guys to – and they just think they have to do it. It's just part of the game including like fellatio in like bathroom stalls in the seventh grade. Like it's disgusting and abusive and it's sexual exploitation. Yeah. Like the little, like little girls feel like they have to basically function like sex workers. And you're like, Oh, that's taking it too far. It's not taking it too far. They're trading sexual, like putting out sexually for, for attention. There's, there's, they're selling themselves below dollar values. To simply get attention and like for Christians to think that this is all just like just mildly immoral is horrific. And so I just think that Christians, if we just kind of wake up to some of this, that these dating relationships, cohabitation relationships, I don't doubt that people who enter into them feel like they're good people and they feel like they're doing something that's not that big a deal. They believe it's consensual. What's wrong with this? They think through both as a woke and a libertarian person, right? I'm woke because I'm liberal. Like this is like, this is fine. We can do whatever we want. And I'm libertarian. As long as it's consensual, it's okay. God just completely disagrees with both of those and has said so in his self-revelation. It's not. And, and it gets back to that whole question of nature we talked about on Sunday that like, not only do you have to believe God's logic and see the mind of Christ, you have to do it as understanding the kind of creature that you are, that you're a human being. Right, we are not abstract sexual creatures. We're embedded human beings with psychologies that change and are affected and traumatized and all that. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, you can just do whatever you want. It's just foolish. Yeah. And I realized that, like, <clears throat> and listen, like, I'm, in some ways, I'm on board with progressives here, right? Because like, progressives would be like, you can't, you know, there's power differentials. You can't do this. People get traumatized. Like, you can't just give consent to what you want. I agree with that. I just think the solution isn't governmental intervention, the redistribution of resources and all that. I think the difference is obeying the Lord with our sexuality, mm-hmm. right? When we, that, that we connect our sexual activity with the comprehensive relationship of a unbreakable, permanent and comprehensive union in marriage so that we give everything to one another, both man to woman and woman to man. When that happens and when that woman is the one you will have to care for the rest of your life, your incentives not to abuse her are pretty significant, right? And vice versa. So I think God's solution is much better than the woke solutions for the most part. Though some of the woke solutions, like when woke people are like, hey, men shouldn't be mean to women. Like I'm totally on board with that, (laughs) right? Um, So some of them are fine. They're just impracticable. Just telling men to be nice to the women isn't going to do it. It it just isn't going to, it's not going to make much of a difference. Whereas demanding that we behave in certain ways to each other because of our nature as human beings, I think will make Mm -hmm. a better difference. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so, yeah. so I'm not, listen, I'm not going to back down on this language relative to the way we sexually brutalize each other in this culture. Like, yeah, I accept when, when, when I've heard women say, listen, the purity culture in, in churches, especially evangelical churches and Catholic churches is just really harmful to women. I agree with that. I agree that in a lot of like fundamentalist and legalistic churches, purity culture has been very negative for women in them embracing the pleasure of their sexuality and the goodness of their sexuality, acting like women, feeling like women. I totally agree with that. 
Um, I do not agree that it's worse <laughs> in any meaningful sense than the destructive worldliness of the hookup culture and the sexual revolution and all of that nonsense that's getting worse. It's getting much, much worse rather than better right now. The church needs to get better on its purity culture while also both bearing a standard against the externally destructive culture, but also being a hospital for those fleeing it. Yeah. Realizing that people who are coming to us are going to come to us sexually traumatized by that culture that must produce distrust, intergender hatred, and sexual and emotional trauma. Mm-hmm. It couldn't be otherwise. Yeah, and it does require detangling who God is and what, what he requires and why. Like why he has those standards for us um, from the ways we've been treated harmfully by humans. So I think that's especially true with the purity culture. But the solution to the oppressive nature of the purity culture is not to let go of all restrictions. That's not that's not going to help. That's because that wasn't the actual problem. The problem was being harmed by people who were misusing what they thought were God's. Yeah. The problem wasn't that the regulations were too restrictive. The problem is is that we weren't good people. Right. Right. And it turns out that when we still aren't good people and you just take away all the restrictions, trying to like keep the us being bad people from destroying each other, we really hurt each other all the more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's end there. Um, If we didn't get to your question that if that's still burning in your mind from weeks ago, um, please send us an email and we'll try to cover it another time. Yeah. Or another we got way. through like two thirds of them though. That's pretty we good. Got, yeah. We got through a lot of questions. This wasn't even all the questions we've received over the weeks, but we tried to get most of them. So yeah, let us know if you have more questions. You can email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thank you, Nick. All right. See you later guys. Yeah. We'll see you later. this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you like this episode, rate us, review us on your favorite podcast platform, and also share this episode with a friend. That is the best way that we have to reach new listeners. If you have an idea for a question that you want us to answer on the podcast or just a general podcast topic, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org and we'll do our best to fit it in. Also, if you'd like to find more episodes of the podcast, you can do so by going to highpointchurch.org slash podcast, or else we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, other apps like that. So until next time, thanks for joining us for this episode of Engage and Equip.